Support for Healthcare Americana comes from Freedom HealthWorks. With Freedom HealthWorks, physicians, employers, and patients can thrive in direct care. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com to start your journey into direct care today. From Freedom HealthWorks, it's Healthcare Americana, a show about innovators, idealists, and pioneers in healthcare. These are their stories. Hi, everyone. I'm Christopher Habig, and on today's episode... What do dreams, nightmares, snoring, and insomnia have to do with your quality of life? If you said a whole stinking lot, you'd be right. Recently, a CDC study found that 35% of adults don't get enough sleep. This will put people at risk for really severe health complications down the line, including heart attacks, heart disease, strokes, and even depression, amongst a whole laundry list of other issues. So furthermore, about 50 to 70 million Americans report a sleep disorder. That is a good chunk of the population. The underlying conditions usually go unnoticed or untreated with the bureaucratic health systems that dominate our health industry in the US. When a patient comes to their fee-for-service doctor with a list of questions, sleep issues are rarely going to be at the top. Now to combat sleep disorders, a new front in direct care has been opened. Dr. Avi Barr created his sleep and pulmonary practice in Georgia, helping patients get the answers and treatment that they need with convenience of virtual care. About a year after completing my MBA, I felt that I had enough confidence and enough frustration with healthcare to realize that if I didn't do something about it myself, I could keep talking about it. And that's where regrets come in. I don't want to be the guy who's, you know, past middle age and kind of scratching his belly going, ah, I should have done it when I had the chance. And so I said, you know what, screw it. And I left my practice. I had my best financial year when I left my practice and uh, I've had no regrets. Summarize for us, you know, why did you do this? What's the goal of your practice? I wanted to deliver a practice that I could be proud of. Um, I did not want to um, see a patient as just a reimbursement. I felt that getting them through their journey was a lot more satisfying when I could actually give them an experience where they felt that they were cared for. I think, you know, a lot of us as physicians or in the healthcare field, we we get paid a reasonable amount for the work that we put in uh, and all the sacrifices we make. But, and so it's not so much the, the, re, the outcome in terms of finances, because I can't, there's only a certain number of patients I can uh, force through my practice and put them on a conveyor belt and get them through in and out as fast as possible. I didn't feel any satisfaction when I was doing that. Um, even with my high RVUs that I was getting, I just want to do something where I was actually able to create something that actually patients felt uh, allowed them to be cared for effectively. So I think that's the overall goal is to deliver a, a experience or a quality that I can be proud of, that I can be happy with. But beyond that, I think the center of the focus is being having the patient come out of this thing like they got the care they needed when they wanted it. That's a, that's a great point. It's something that we hear echoed. Um, a lot of physicians we talk to is they're tired of that hamster wheel. They're tired of the RVUs want to return more to quality care for patients rather than the quantity. So, um, you know, my next question here is more of a general question about, you know, what your practice does. You mentioned it's, it's about sleep care, but, you know, tell us, tell our audience a little bit more about what sleep studies are. Tell us a little bit more about sleep care, because I think there's a lot of um, confusion out there on what that, what you really do and what that really means. Okay. So, you know, again, sleep is, I do both pulmonary and sleep medicine, and we're trying to evaluate the patient to uh, figure out what the problems are and how they come to us is either a primary care physician or the patient themselves recognizes they have a sleep issue. 
what happens frequently is because sleep is, ends up being issue number five or six on the list of, of problems that they have, apart from the hypertension, their heart disease, their diabetes, their renal dysfunction, sleep gets ignored. But what we forget to, to realize is if we don't attack the core issues, such as good sleep, good nutrition, mobility, and the crux of, of, of overall good care, sleep doesn't get uh, recognized pretty often. So a lot of patients end up coming to me at a very late stage. So the, the idea is that, you know, one thing is recognition of sleep as a problem. I don't think people see that as, as, as a primary problem driving some of the issues. And so patients will come to me uh, with issues regarding sleep, but they've dealt with that for years. Uh, they get mismanaged. And I say mismanaged in a way, I'm not blaming the clinician because a clinician only has a few minutes with each one of them and trying to refill medications, trying to figure out what the hospitalization or the ER visit was for, trying to figure out the fact that they didn't get the medication or their diabetes is not in control. And so they end up at the end of the day or the end of the visit, the patient may just say, well, I have difficulty sleeping. So they may get a prescription for Zolpidem or Ambien and so on. Or the physician, if they have the foresight, the clinician may be able to get a sleep study for them. Say that you need CPAP, the patient tries CPAP, hates CPAP because they have no idea why they need it. They, snoring was their spouse's problem, not their problem. You know, the mask is, is ill-fitting and they may have tried it a few years ago. So a lot of patients will end up coming and, and trying to figure out, you know, I, I, to a point where it's breaking their relationship or affecting their work. And so the, the issue is, the, or what I try to do is actually listen to them, what they have and the problems are, and then immediately decide if they need a home sleep study or a sleep study. Now, it is important for, for physicians when they order these studies to know that not everyone needs a home sleep study or should have a home sleep study. Some, there's a small percentage of patients which I evaluate, which will need um, in-lab studies. These are patients with a lot more diseases, disease burden, bad heart disease, bad lung disease, bad neurological problems. And so the idea is to try to make sure the patient gets the testing that's most appropriate for them. By and large, a major large majority of patients can get home sleep tests done. These home sleep tests are mailed out um, to the patient themselves. They come in a, in a, in a box uh, with the equipment set inside. We sterilize the equipment. We replace all the replaceable parts. The equipment goes out to the patient. They have a video that they can click on the link to see how that's set up. It's pretty easy. There's two or three probes that they have to attach themselves. They switch it on before they go to sleep. They fall asleep, and then when they wake up, they switch it off. And then they put it back into the box and mail it back to us, and we have a return label and everything else prepackaged. So it's pretty easy and, and, and simple for them. Within the, uh, the package returning back to us, we upload the information. I read the sleep study within 24 hours. So we have a pretty quick turnaround time for that. And once a patient's deemed to need sleep uh, or has had a sleep study and is deemed to need CPAP uh, or the treatment for sleep apnea, that's when we kind of discuss with them. Or actually, I've already discussed with them usually during the appointment itself because I, I find that the more information they have or what to expect, um, the easier it is a patient to understand and whatever problems that they have or questions they have, we can answer during the telemedicine evaluation. And so by the time the home sleep study results come around, we set them up with CPAP and then we follow through with them to make sure that they have a mask fit that works for them. They're using it well. They understand why they're using it and to kind of capture that issues and, and make sure that they, they actually go through the, the journey uh, as quickly as possible, but, but with information that's relevant to them that allows them to understand why they doing it. Right. So it seems like a painless process uh, to a potentially complicated issue. Um, you know, I love that you mentioned that a lot of people don't view sleep as being a problem, being the root cause of what 
um, of a lot of their ailments. But I love the concept of sleep being a problem, but sleep can also be a solution at the same time using mm-hmm. some personalized care techniques like you were just talking about. Um, wanted to take you know a, a quick step back here. Talk about your background. Talk about how you got into this. Um, you've had a, a pretty uh, robust, oh, you traveled a great distance, I'll say that, uh, from when you grew up and through your education and you know, I, I, you got more diplomas than most people can even count, uh, you know, <laughs> board certifications, all this stuff. So there isn't a lot that you haven't done in medicine. So take us through some of your earliest times, um, you know, growing up uh, overseas and, and what led you uh, to where you are now. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's been quite a journey. And, you know, if, if you know, I, I believe that no matter how much you predict what may happen in five, 10 years, you have no clue because, I, I could not have imagined where I was, I am now based even 10 years ago, so let alone mm-hmm. childhood. But I, I grew up, I was born in, uh, and raised in Malaysia. Uh, I grew up in Kuala Lumpur, the capital city. Um, was there till the end of uh, high school. And then I got a uh, scholarship to go to Singapore to uh, do college, which I, I did and uh, enjoyed it. But it, it definitely kicked my butt. Um, it was a very intense place to go to. Singapore is going to extremely robust uh, uh, education system. And I must say that uh, that broke me in a good way. Uh, you know, whatever mm-hmm. preconceived uh, self-confidence I'd built up through high school, being a big fish in a small pond uh, was shattered immediately upon entering <laughs> Singapore. And so I credit Singapore for kind of shaping my, my I guess my resilience, if you want to call it that, because I've, I've cried over grades in Singapore that I never thought I would ever <laughs> cry about. So, and so I left Singapore and came back to Malaysia to complete my medical school. And during medical school, kind of went through a mid-medical school life crisis, trying to figure out whether I really wanted to be a physician. Somehow, I think I found the curriculum a little strangulating in the sense it didn't allow me to kind of express my creative side. And what I did was to to kill time and to kind of keep me uh, running away from medicine. I actually set up a, a startup at that point uh, with a buddy of mine who helped finance it, and we did personal care products. So I helped design the products, market research, did that. That was a great distraction. So it allowed me to get through medical school without feeling like I, need, I needed to pull my hair out. A little bit different uh, than some startup. of the coursework, co- coursework in medical school, right? <laughs> <laughs> like a 180 from each other. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the only thing that kind of kept me going is the fact that I had distractions. I'd be rounding, doing my clinical rounds in the hospital during the morning and the afternoon, answering calls from suppliers and manufacturers and so on in the afternoon. Uh, so the balance was good. And I think, uh, you know, my mom calls me a jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. And I think she means that in a good way. And so I finished medical school and I sold my prac- uh, my startup to my partner. And that's when I decided I was going to come to the United States. I, I felt I needed a new challenge. Set for my US MLEs, uh, started my residency in New York City in 2006, and then did my pulmonary and critical care fellowship at UT Memphis. Finished that up in 2012. And then in 2013, finished up my sleep medicine fellowship at WashU St. Louis. And so the journey was, I've always been curious. Uh, I think that's, I've always felt that, uh, and, I, and I don't like regrets. And so I wanted to do something. Every time I decided what specialty I, I want to do, it always had to be something that, that I was curious about. I was innately curious about. So I enjoyed the field of critical care and pulmonary. And when I was kind of approaching that, that moment where I had to decide whether I had to grow up and, uh, and get a full-time job or do another year of fellowship, 
sleep seemed in- interesting at that point. And a lot of, uh, a lot of patients in, with pulmonary or respiratory issues have a lot of sleep problems. So it was an a, a intuitive extension to be, for me to be a better physician to my patients. And after speaking to my program director, I think you know, he, he kind of set me on that path as well. So I did a sleep fellowship and I moved down to Georgia to start work. And I was employed for the first five and a half years or so of my uh, practice life, full practice. Uh, I did my MBA in between. Um, I was doing it at the University of Chicago. So I had to fly there twice, uh, twice a month in between call and everything else, which was hectic, but I enjoyed it. And uh, what drove me to do my MBA was I, f- I felt as physicians, the better we become being physicians, the less we know and understand the world around us. If you're a lawyer or you're, a, you're an engineer and so on, the higher you up, you, you go up in your company, they're actually more worldly. You understand marketing, you understand different fields. The better you become as a physician, you actually become very pigeonholed. And I didn't like the idea that I was, I only knew my part of medicine and that's all mm-hmm. I, and I felt like, I, you know, based on my entrepreneurial past as well, I felt like I needed to better understand the world around me, healthcare in general. I did my MBA and, um, and then I, about a year after completing my MBA, I felt that I had enough confidence and enough frustration with healthcare to realize that if I didn't do something about it myself, I could keep talking about it. And that's where regrets come in. I don't want to be the guy who's, you know, past middle age and kind of scratching his belly going, ah, I should have done it when I had the chance. And so I said, you know what, screw it. And I left my practice. I had my best financial year when I left my practice. And uh, with student debt with my MBA, <laughs> then right, decided right. Oh, this seemed like a great idea. And uh, I've had no regrets uh, since, uh, since I left my employed practice. Oh, that's great. That's great. I, you made a, a really good point there. And I um, just want to repeat that, that the better you are as a doctor, the more pigeonholed you are. And I think that's something that is just, again, like you said, something's very, very unique to medicine is, oh, this is this specialist over there. Only talk to that person when you need X done. Um, did people, when you're getting your, your MBA, did people kind of look at you saying, what in the world are you doing here? You haven't made, you're a doctor. What, why do you want to switch or why do you yeah. want to continue, you know, learning type of thing? Cause I'm going to go ahead on and go down a limb and say that that's, that's something that is again, very unique. Yeah, you see more and more medical schools now having combined uh, MD, MBA programs. I mean, obviously, more of the elite schools do that, uh, but they also have it where you have you can do a master's in public health. Um, so the MBA definitely is, is definitely a small fraction of people that do that. I want to do that. And when I did my MBA as well, I got that question frequently, like, you know, you're a subspecialist, you're not even a, a general physician. Most of the time we get uh, general physicians coming through here or just general surgeons and they're looking for like a, a sort of a retirement plan uh, mm-hmm. or what to do or how to get out of medicine. Uh, right. Mine was more to better understand how I could affect, affect change in medicine. I, you know, I, I give you that it's completely um, what the word is. It's, uh, it's something idealistic. Uh, maybe I was naive. Uh, but I, I, my curiosity was trying to figure out if I could be a, a good or a positive agent of change. And for me to do that best was to actually get an MBA to better understand how things actually work um, and not be pigeonholed as a physician. Because I felt that in, in healthcare, especially in an employed position, they, they, you know, once you, you, you get recognized for delivering good quality, they want you on a committee. Uh, but they, they don't give you any power, decision-making capacity. Right. And so they just want you to sign off on some of the decisions to rubber stamp it by an actual fact, not allow you to affect change. And, and that group, and again, 
That is that is my personal experience. I, I know there's many other institutions out there that actually welcome physician and, and nursing leaders, uh, but it was my personal experience. That's what I felt. Right. Yeah. It, it seems like a lot of those combined programs you mentioned, it's physicians looking to move up into administrative positions to have mm. that control, to have that power, or maybe just to have somebody listen to them uh, for the first <laughs> time in a lot of their careers, right? <laughs> yes. So, so like that would be. Yeah, exactly. So what was it like seeing, uh, seeing the U.S. Uh, and the healthcare industry here for the first time when you decided to come over and then you got more and more involved in it? Um, what was that like? Um, I think the realization that no place actually had the perfect system. There were a lot of plus points to what the U.S. has in terms of uh, access or, or democratic access to care. Patients are not encumbered by some sort of bureaucratic restriction. Uh, to get the example, they need a gallbladder removed or the knee replaced. Uh, there, is, there is an avenue for them to get that. There are providers that will do that based on, on your need and, and they're not too far away. In, in a small centralized or if you want to call it socialized uh, medicine medical system, more patients get access to a, a, a reasonable level of care. But when you need something a little different or when something's a little bit more unique to you, that's when you have problems. And again, it's, it's more of a, it's a top-down approach. The U.S. seemed to have a, a bottom-up approach, or that, that's the idea, and we talk about free markets, but you and I know that the regulatory capture that occurs in healthcare is, is so severe that we have a semblance of a free market, but we actually don't. And, and right. that, was, that was what my, 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 my part of my goal is to actually bring, bring options to patients that, that need it when they need it uh, and how they want it. Um, so that at least it's tailor-made to their needs rather than a, a very top-down approach. Because right now, healthcare systems have a monopoly. Uh, they dish out what they want to. Uh, they call themselves non-for-profits, but in actual fact, they're just tax-exempt. Um, and a lot of their, their motives are, are suspect because I think a lot of decisions that were made even with this COVID situation um, has, has kind of revealed, you know, they, they talk about a crisis revealing someone's true character. Um, and you see how certain healthcare systems actually forced employees to come back to work even though they had positive COVID results because they were like, well, how we, you know, we can't pay overtime for the other staff that has to come back. And so, you know, there is a lot of conflict of interest that occurs in medicine. And so that's where I feel like, you know, people can talk about socialized medicine as much as they want. They can talk about uh, free market, but we don't really have a proper free market system here. And I think we need to slowly give patients more and more of those options because, the way we are going, we're, the, the guys that we're calling our current medical healthcare system as free market, it's not. Uh, it is actually closer to socialized care, except that you give, give the control and fiefdoms to large insurance companies and large healthcare systems, which keep you know, using each other's size to kind of leverage on the negotiations. But it's the small people, the little people, the patients themselves, the ones that actually hold up healthcare, who are getting screwed every day. Sorry, I didn't mean to go off on my soapbox here, but... Oh, no, no. I, I'm, I'm sure we would have gotten there at some point, right? <laughs> you know, you call it fiefdoms. I call it an oligarchy. And it's like, you know, people think that their health insurance equals health care. And so that is in a, a, a theme that we drive home almost every single episode is that just because you have health insurance does not mean you have health care. And then going from three to four people or entities that control that to one is going to create some some big issues. But yeah, you're exactly right. It isn't a, a free market. It's one of the most heavily regulated industries that we have in the US. And we wonder why nobody likes it and why it fails. And there's a 
common uh, denominator and all that. Um, so, you know, you took the path that, you know, damn it, I'm going to fix this. Went to business school to try to figure out, you know, different ways to do that, different ways to address it. Um, got your MBA and then you decided, you know what, employment medicine might not be the best way to do that. So you started your own practice. So tell us a little bit what that journey was like um, when you left employed medicine, starting your own clinic and the experiences that you had. So, yeah, I mean, I left about a year now and I've, um, I took about two or three months off to kind of really figure out because one thing that I learned was, you know, the, the money that I made being employed was good, uh, but it sucked out my time and it didn't give me, I didn't get any satisfaction out of it. So I felt time was extremely important. Uh, um, and, you know, in business school, they definitely teach you the time value of money. And so now I talk, I, I think of it as the time value of time, uh, because there is, there is a value to ensuring that you're actually using your, your time well now. And I took about two or three months off to get some headspace, uh, read, I read a lot, uh, drove my wife insane because I was at home so much, uh, and just <laughs> on my butt. Uh, before that, I was always running at hundred miles an hour. So I, I really needed to decompress and get some headspace. And looking at what, what, what kind of made me frustrated with my practice or previous practice, uh, at least put together some of the blocks. And I wanted to have freedom on where I lived and how I lived. And so telemedicine for me was, was a great option, was a great way to set things up. So my practice has been, has been fully telemedicine. I don't have a physical office, uh, which, which is, makes it harder. So the journey has definitely not been easy. Uh, oddly enough, or I guess it makes sense that telemedicine now is finally uh, taking off, but it was even six months ago, it was hard to convince people that telemedicine was something, you know, even from fellow physicians, they're like, how do you physically examine someone? I was like, well, you know, I'm not Dr. House where I'm going to come in there and see a spot on someone's hand and make a, diagnos a diagnosis that no one else has made for the last, you know, few years. You know, a lot of healthcare can be done via tele. A lot of healthcare is, is on, on history taking, talking to the patient, listening, putting a timeline together, reading and understanding what medications they're on, what journey they've been through. And a lot of medicine is actually listening and healing that way. Um, and so telemedicine seemed like a great option. And I knew a lot of what I did, honestly, what I did in sleep and what I did in pulmonary. The, and people say, well, don't you need to listen to a wheeze? You can ask a patient whether they wheeze. They'll tell you whether they're wheezing. <laughs> you don't They'll tell you whether they're coughing. They can... Yeah. I don't need to auscultate that and, and verify because the, the physical exam is, is, is a requirement by the insurance company. Uh, and if you ask any physician, I mean, how many primary care doctors listens to every single um, a heart sound? They may listen to one or two and that's it. It sounds fine. It sounds appropriate. You click on a box and you, you, you charge the insurance companies. But mm -hmm. the, the exam itself has got limited value. And, and so much of what we do right now is imaging based. Uh, and so, you know, if, if I needed it to rule out a nodule or a spot in the lungs, a CT scan is what I'm going to order. I'm not going to trust my physical examination to rule out a, uh, a nodule. I'm not saying that all of healthcare can be done via tele. Don't, don't get me wrong about that. There's, I think, but a large majority of healthcare can be done via tele. And I felt what I was doing, I could deliver that through a telemedicine. And that's why I chose to set up a practice that way. But how the practice kind of developed as well was in terms of doing the home sleep testing. You know, every, every facet or aspect of a business that, that you have to uh, uh, provide resources to and manage is a drain on your own sort of uh, uh, capacity. 
both financially and time as well. So I had to think about whether I really want to take on, apart from telemedicine, the home sleep testing and whether I wanted to also do the CPAP out of it. Because, you know, I could just make enough money with my telemedicine not to worry about the other two aspects and let the system handle the system and let patients deal with the gruelingness of what they do. But I just felt like if I was if I was going to practice the way I, I felt that what patients needed, what I would want personally, I would want to speak to one doctor and have him handle and, and provide me the care so that I don't have to go to three different providers, a home sleep testing company and the DME company that is approved by the insurance company. And again, I, I, in my practice, when I asked the patient who the DME company was, they couldn't tell me because they had been the the buck had been passed so many times uh, that they uh, they had no idea who. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, and so that's how my practice kind of grew into what it is. It's just kind of an integrated sleep and pulmonary uh, practice, and we do everything from evaluation to testing and, and equipment setup. With the coronavirus pandemic uh, that we were all embracing at this point in time, I mean, is there a moment where you just shake your head when you hear our current, uh, I'm going to use some air quotes here, current healthcare leaders uh, talking about the need for telemedicine and you're kind of waving your hand like, wait a minute, I've been doing this for years. Why hasn't everybody else caught up to where I am? Uh, yeah. And again, I, I think, um, you know, someone said this, applying technology over a broken system just still gives you a broken system. Right. Um, and, and, and having a provider see 15, 20 patients in the office with waiting rooms and so on, and then trying to squeeze in a telemedicine visit, that's, that's not going to change. We're not going to change our capacity. We're not going to actually do much more. So I think we really have to figure out whether telemedicine or telehealth, if you want to call it, is, is going to be the base and the foundation of how we care for patients because we do have the technology for that. Mm -hmm. And then allow for in-person visits for those who are a lot more acutely ill or have a much more complex disease processes that a physical exam may benefit you. Um, so I think just giving patients, oh, we not, you can click a button and now you can do a telehealth visit isn't really a, a it, it may work fine in terms of PR and marketing, but I think the whole practice has to be, has to revolve around it and you have to have the infrastructure to, to meet the needs of the patient, not just apply technology to a problem and hope to hell that it, it, it solves it. Well, there was no way to get paid for it before until the government said, oh, CMS is covering telemedicine visits, right? We always joke that, you know, paper and pen is a form of technology. A phone call is a form of technology. You can't just say, oh, wow, look, we're to, so tech-enabled, now we're doing video chats and it's going to increase the care when the lack of time or the punishing expense of some of these visits is the underlying factor of why mm -hmm. we're getting sicker as a population. And I think, you know, there'd be some interesting studies once, um, once we're able to, to corral this virus and, and see just how devastatingly unhealthy our population is in the U.S. and how it is really affecting, you know, the virus is highlighting that based on uh, heart conditions, you know, uh, breathing problems, you name it, go down the list. And a lot of that is kind of self-inflicted from people putting off care or not, you know, having a good experience with the, uh, the, the current healthcare system. Mm -hmm. um, so wanted to ask you, you know, as you've been doing this and, and like you said, you're not just uh, doing the telemedicine consults, you're doing a, you know, what I like to call your quarterbacking people's care when it comes to sleep issues. Um, are there common issues you see when it comes to your patients? Yeah. I mean, I think the one is, is patients generally come to me as a second option. Uh, they've, they've, you know, passed, the buck has been passed between them and the primary care doctor, frustrating experiences. Uh, they've used CPAP before, hated it. Uh, but you know, 
the spouse, uh, you know, has argued with them and said, you need to get this done. So we have patients, most, even my previous practice, a lot of my patients were, I don't want to say hand-me-down patients, but it was patients from other practices that just could not deliver the level of care that I normally took pride in, uh, of listening to them and trying to figure out and saying, okay, you know, I can give, let, let me sit down with you five minutes more to figure out what's going on. So I think a lot of the patients that end up coming to me are those who have issues that haven't been addressed. And it's simple enough that if you just sit down and listen to most of them, actually the problem is, is right there. And a lot of them know their problems. So yeah, I think um, one of the, the biggest things about patients coming to me is they've, they've not been cared for in the current traditional system. Either they don't have a specialist nearby or their primary care physician doesn't really understand how sleep fits into everything. And so they've come to me actually self-referred. Um, definitely there are physicians who are a lot more aware of how sleep affects heart disease and heart rhythm issues and breathing issues just in general from a respiratory perspective. Uh, and I do get referrals from them, but by, by and large, a lot of my patients have come to me self-referred, just frustrated uh, that they, and sleep apnea is obviously one of the most uh, uh, common diagnoses that I deal with. Uh, but I also deal with narcoleptic patients and patients with general insomnia. I think insomnia, for example, you know, a lot of, for example, in women, uh, most of the patients that come to me, uh, especially postmenopausal women, have insomnia as an issue. But it's also because postmenopause, their risk of sleep apnea increases. However, most uh, physicians and even the, uh, the patients themselves perceive it as insomnia. And so they end up getting a lot of sleeping pills and so on, but they don't get their sleep apnea treated. And they don't have the usual loud snoring that men do, for example. And so they have gone through life for many years frustrated and, and been, you know, tried Trazodone, tried Ambien, tried Gabapentin, tried all these medications, anything new. They've tried everything off the shelf. They've also, uh, on the shelf, they've also tried. And so, you know, I think it, it's been interesting. And that's what kind of drove my passion to, to set this up was I was getting a lot of patients that, I could solve their problems. They had problems. They, they had problems that had been ignored for years. Uh, just, they just need someone to help them figure it out. It goes back to they just needed somebody to listen to them and take the time to do it and actually treat the issues, not just the symptoms, right? Precisely. When, uh, when you get a new patient saying, oh my gosh, finally I found a doctor who will listen to me. Uh, do you get any pushback when you tell people that you only accept cash as payment? So I... I I have recently started accepting private insurance as well, um, in addition to cash. So I give patients the option, depending on what their copay is like or whether they are insured. Uh, the uh, I, I only do private insurance because CMS has, has some rules that I think are, are unreasonable in terms of stock law violations. They'll allow all health systems to self-refer all the time, but they don't want to allow me as a physician to both have the sleep testing and the sleep equipment set up for the patient. They feel that's a conflict of interest. But you know, they'll get they'll they'll punish their own physicians for referring outside, even though the patients uh, deserve right. to see the best uh, physician in that specialty. And so they do that all the time. But I I'm not allowed to. So I don't do any Medicare or Medicaid for that reason. Uh, and I just generally deal with private insurance and and cash pay. Now I gotta ask this because this is this has been some interesting articles coming out. Um, have any of your patients talked to you about weird dreams they're having because of coronavirus, the quarantine especially? <laughs> uh, I think it's more stress than anything else. Uh, I had one patient who did, who did convey to me, uh, but they were also worried. Uh, they were under a whole bunch of stress as well. <laughs> Thankfully, in a lot of times, the dreaming itself is, is, you know, 
a lot of patients that come to me with bad dreams or dream is an issue, either have some sort of PTSD underlying or they have anxiety underlying as well. So a lot of that, a lot of the, the issues related to coronavirus as well, I think has unearthed a lot of uh, uh, discomfort and anxiety in, in people. So I think the dreaming may be related to that. So some deeper, darker issues are starting to come to the surface, huh? <laughs> Driven by stress, which yeah, that's a real, that's a real issue. That's a real problem. It's not to, to make light of it by any means here. Um, you know, you mentioned that education is such a big driving force, especially amongst patients and, and really amongst physicians. You know, how do we help people understand that there's a different, and you know, I always say different, not necessarily better way because everybody's a little bit different. How do we help them understand that there's a different way for them to seek the relief or get the care that they need? You know, I, I think at the end of the day, it's going to depend on the patient themselves taking charge of their, their, their health. Uh, like I said, most of the patients that come to me have, have realized that they were not getting the care they wanted and they started seeking advice online, going to forums, um, you know, whether Facebook, Googling uh, seeing that other people were getting the Googling things and so on. Exactly. So you have a lot of these avenues where patients actually have started doing that. And I think that's great. And I, and I really am embarrassed whenever I hear about physicians who, who, you know, who say, Oh, you're listening to Dr. Google and you know, I'm not going to talk to you if you, you if you're paying attention. And that is, it, it, you want patients to be engaged. You want patients. I'm always impressed when someone's, even though they've gotten wrong information, but that's a, at least a basis to start a conversation. You know, they've taken initiative. We, we always roll our eyes, uh, you know, whenever we see a patient who isn't taking care of themselves or I've told them this multiple times and they haven't done it yet. But then you have the opposite way. You have a patient who's very much engaged, who wants to know and wants to discuss and has read about the disease. Yes, their information may be wrong. Yeah, they didn't go to medical school just like you to kind of crunch that and, and put it into relevant, you know, uh, into a relevant flow. But I think that should be a basis to where we, we start that information. So I think you know, patients educating themselves now is so much simpler, but I, I would stress that they should go to sources of information that's valid, you know, whether it's WebMD, whether it's Mayo Clinic, whether it's Cleveland Clinic, you know, these are brand names that you can trust who they're less likely. I, I wouldn't say they're not going to put stuff that's questionable out there because I, you know, Cleveland Clinic has put out some stuff about wellness and so on, which I'm not sure I buy. Uh, but they want people to buy that. And so, you know, I think, uh, you know, trust, trust re relevant sources. And that's why I've also on my website, I've taken the opportunity to blog a lot more. I've written stuff about my COVID experience. I've written stuff about how patients should handle mouth dryness when they have CPAP, how patients should worry about bloating when they have CPAP on how to find the right, right mask fit. And so this, this kind of, and I, and I've, done YouTube videos as well, teaching videos for both clinicians and patients that's on my website. And so these resources are available freely to allow patients to actually have access because there's no reason why I should be some sort of uh, a, a, a gatekeeper that has access to your health. Uh, if I have that information and, and if I write something down that can benefit you, then so be it. You know, as long as you feel like you got the care you did uh, through me, I'll be pleased and happy with that. Uh, and if I can help more people, so be it. I love it. Come in, you know, prepare, do your research and research is okay, but be able to listen at the same time too. But mm -hmm. when you actually have questions for your doctors and then flip side, conversely on the, on the physician side saying, you know, it's okay if somebody has a bunch of questions and they've researched it just as long as they're using some reputable sources. And you know what, maybe there is something you haven't really thought about that 
could be going on that they've that they've found here. So, you know, just as we as we wrap up here, I wanted to see if you have any advice or any tips for people out there listening. Um, you know, thinking to themselves, well, shoot, how do I figure out some, if something's wrong? How do I sleep better? And then, um, you know, let us know your your uh, URL and your website address so that mm-hmm. people can use that as a resource as well. Yeah, so you know the whole the whole basis is trying to get care to people who need it, and uh, you know what the website has is, for example, things like you know uh, blogs about why you wake up feeling tired. So if you are waking up tired, I think the first step is is like you talked about a physician being, uh, I guess, humble enough to say that I may not know everything, and let me find find it find this out. I think from a patient perspective as well, if you have something that is bothering you and you don't feel like you're up to your usual state of health or you feel people are let's say more awake or have more restful sleep start being curious about why that isn't the case and don't blame it on old age i have way too many people blaming oh i'm just aging and that's about it you know aging is just a state of mind as they say well i I do grant you there is an issue you know aging does cause other problems as well i'm not trying to make light of it uh, but to blame whether your shortness of breath or your energy level or your sleep is, is is not good um, is is to actually start finding out. You can Google that and find out why am I tired and, and try to figure it out. Come to my website. Uh, and the website URL is www.sleep, spelled S-L-triple-I, so I-I-I-P.com. It's pronounced sleep, as you would, uh, but it's spelled S-L-triple-I-P. And there's a web, uh, resources place where you can check out blogs and videos and so on. But feel free to ask me questions as well. But the first step is to to be honest with yourself and say, do I have a problem? And am I just, we tend to rationalize when we have a pain in, in our ankle, we start walking with the uh, heavier weight on the other ankle. So we tend to adapt and rationalize a lot of our issues and that delays access to care or get, getting care when you need to. So, you know, being honest about what you have and then trying to, f- figure out whether that's normal or whether it's abnormal by finding uh, talking to people around you or even Googling it. Uh, and then feel free to reach out to me. Feel free to visit your website, sliiip.com or, uh, you know, even follow you on Twitter um, yeah. at Avi Bar, A-V-I-B-H-A-R. Well, Dr. Bar, uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, really appreciate your time. Wish you the best of luck and look forward to following all your success. Pleasure being in. Thank you for having me and uh, stay safe during these times. We will, likewise. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. And hey, if you're interested in becoming a sponsor, let us know that too. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.